on five shifts of a new reformation or what I'm calling a revival uh, and sort of a reformation together. I want to say something about this. Uh, we're going to pause next week, by the way. We're going to have a guest next Sunday. There's two Sundays I'm giving up for guests in my last Sundays at Pilgrim, which I am very sad about. Well, one of them's to Josh, so he's not a guest. Uh, but anyway, so next Sunday we have a guest here, uh, Ryan Gurra, who is a lead pastor at Field and Town Church uh, for two years, and he is uh, doing various ministries, so he's going to be here next Sunday. And then after that, we'll jump back in with number four and number five of the five shifts. Uh, number four, dealing with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And five, again, about reminding us what does it mean to be a center-set church that has boundaries but is not bounded. There's a difference, having healthy boundaries versus a bounded mindset uh, and, and as we finish up this series. And then in the rest of the weeks, we'll be uh, talking about various topics uh, that are on my heart and mind that I want to leave you with, words of blessing, words of encouragement, and challenge as well. Uh, so that's kind of what's going to be happening in the next uh, two months of the teaching ministry here at Pilgrim Church. So today, uh, I want to invite you to stand with me and grab your Bible or your Bible app and we're going to go to uh, Matthew chapter 20 today, Matthew chapter 20. Now, by the way, if you're here and you want to use a paper Bible, we always have paper Bibles available by this doorway as you come in. You can grab one of them. They're NIV. Uh, and also, if you uh, want to touch the hymnal, we don't. We often put hymns. By the way, we sang a hymn this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is a very... Um, has some beautiful words in that hymn, isn't it? Powerful stuff. A mighty fortress is our God. If not the right man, meaning Jesus were on our side, we would be losing. I mean, all this marvelous hymnody. Uh, I really enjoyed singing that. Although I noticed somebody else in the congregation, just like me, was singing it as if I was singing it from the hymnal, and we jumped the gun. So I was with whoever that other voice was. I was right there with you. So <laughs> no shame, no shame. Uh, uh, I'm also torn about Martin Luther hymns too, because he was... Uh, um, he was it's one of these things, in fact, this fits into the text we're about to read here. When he was part of reforming the Catholic Church, he had a lot of very open-handed uh, views about how we should look at power, how we should look at scripture. But as he get his own power source and power base in, in what becomes the Lutheran Church, he sort of doubles down on the evils of concentrated power. So he kind of does this weird pendulum swing and by the end of his ministry, he was incredibly, and maybe always had this stuff, but once he had power, it just exposed it, and he didn't deal with it, but he was an anti-Semite. Uh, so, so it's weird for me singing this song, because I know the story of Martin Luther. He was an anti-Semite. What do we do with teachers and pastors and authors when they go off the rails with their, with their material or with whatever? He was an anti-Semite, and not only that, he did not like the reformers that took it farther than he took it, the Anabaptists, and he said things like this. The Jews were worse, or no, the Jews were horrible, so he was an anti-Semite. He said stuff like this and, you know, all of that. And he said, but the Anabaptists are worse than the Jews because they have no excuse. Uh, so I guess that's like racism layered on racism layered on prejudice. So I'm very conflicted singing that song. Wonderful song, but the guy who wrote it really had some issues. Okay. <sighs> that was a whole sermon right there. Amen? <laughs> Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Let's see. Uh, don't be like that. <laughs> Uh, so Matthew chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 20 today. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Hear this text today. This is about Jesus, uh, ancient biographer Matthew writing about Jesus. It says this, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him, to Jesus, with her sons. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons. And kneeling down, she asked for a favor. And he said to her, well, what do you want? And she replied to Jesus, permit these two sons of mine, one to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. 
kingdom of the, to come, the kingdom of God. However, she understood that. We don't know. And Jesus answered her and said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Talking about his death and sacrifice. And they said to him, we are able. And then he told them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right and at my left is not mine to give places of honor and authority in a coming kingdom. Rather, it is for those for whom it has been prepared for by my Father, meaning God in heaven. Verse 24. Now, when the other ten disciples heard this, they were angry with the two brothers. And this is in the group of the twelve disciples here. The other ten were angry with the two brothers. Like, can you just imagine this? Who do you think you are? You're bringing your mother in here? You're letting your mother sort of pull the trump card to try to get special places and position in the kingdom of heaven? I imagine that was a tense situation. But Jesus called to them and he said this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. There was something about that going on this weekend, I can't recall. You remember that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions use their authority over them. It must not be this way among you. Let me say that again, verse 26. It must not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this house and this time that we gathered here. And Lord, thank you that in the scandalous, messy local church, the habitual gathering of community centered around you, Jesus, your life, teachings, death, resurrection, the exposition of scripture, receiving of communion, of ministry and prayer one to another, that there's something unique here. And God, forgive us if, we, if we've been... Uh, if, if we forget that there's something powerful happening here. So Holy Spirit, we yield to you. And I know I can't change anyone's mind. I'm probably going to annoy a few people. But Lord, by your spirit, through the foolishness of proclamation of your kingdom, do the work that you can only do. We yield to you today. You are the divinity. We, I am the dirt in this equation. Speak through your scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated this morning? I would like to point out in King Charles' coronation that he actually quoted from this, uh, modified, I've not come to be served but to serve. Ironically, with all the trappings of human uh, empire, colonialization, all the other things. So, so this should tell us something, that Christianity can be co-opted for purposes that are not very Jesus-centric. That's another sermon I'll be talking about that maybe is one of my uh, top 10 as I get to my last six Sundays after this series, but uh, the co-option or the crushing of the faith, which happens in various ways. So we've been talking about these marks of a revival or reformation that is beginning to happen, this beautiful Jesus-shaped thing that we're seeing across North America and even the world. And maybe it's important to point out that this isn't a new movement in the sense that they're coming up with new ideas but rather it's a calling the church back to some of the most basic fundamental things we see in the life of Jesus and in the early church, the couple centuries before the imperialization of the church, when church gets in bed more and more with the state. And this call to return to this kind of way of being is important. 
And I think if the church in North America is going to have any hope at reaching new people and new generations for Jesus, these are things, these are important things that we need to pay attention to. In this five shifts, the third one of the five shifts is a call to remember we need to have a new relationship with power. In fact, I'm going to quote somebody who I don't normally quote because I disagree with him on so many things theologically, but I like this, so I'm going to use it. The Reverend John Piper said this, the way you think and feel and act about money, sex, and power puts your heart's treasure on display. Either God or something he made will be on display how you relate to money, sex, and power. The question we need to ask this in our day is in a context where everyone clamors for power to get their way at the expense of others, what would it look like for the church to model a radically different and altogether beautiful kind of power? That we in the process are pointing people to a radically different and altogether beautiful picture of God. And that in that we come alive. The mother asked, could my, could my son sit at your right and left hand? And he says, woman, it's not given for me to even determine that. In fact, the Lord, the Gentiles, the, the Lord, their power over one another. But it is not to be that way with you. We are to be different in how we use and relate to power in our relationships. Tim Keller, to use this story, talks about this idea of our heart and power. He said, many years ago when I was in college, I was part of a Christian fellowship, and there was a young man who joined up, and it shocked us all. This young man was a famous playboy on campus, was very sexually active, and he had the looks to go with it, Keller relays. He was handsome, he was charismatic, and then to our surprise, he came into the fellowship where he declared, I'm a Christian now, and he forswore his sexual past and was going to live a chaste, pure life. Keller goes on and says he threw himself into Christian activities. He threw himself into all the busyness. And everyone said, wow, this is a real change. However, it wasn't long before we came to realize that this young man in every group, any committee, any Bible study, whether he was the leader or not, had to be the leader. He always sought control. There was a power struggle after power struggle, and after a while it became clear uh, that... Even when he was sexually active in his past and renouncing all that, it really was never about sex. It was about power. He would go after some girl until she fell for him, and then he lost all interest. It was never about the sex. It was about power. Sorry, this is PG-13. When we talk more about sex, maybe a little bit after this series, uh, it'll maybe ramp up to between 13 and R, but okay, brace yourselves. <laughs> When he came into church, he suddenly adopted all the Christian beliefs, the statements of faith, the Christian practices. He was very bounded. He ticked off all the boxes. He crossed the boundary in a bounded sort of way. He stopped living in promiscuity, but deep down inside, he still wanted power, power in relationships. And this is how you can be a very bounded church and yet be almost completely pagan Christianity instead of how is my arrow going towards relationship of a strong center of Jesus. He ticked off all the boxes and yet he needed deep transformation and a bounded mindset does not result in life change for many people. It's boundary maintenance, it's performing and hiding. Keller went on to say this, that we all have the need for deeper conversion in our hearts. And I would say we all have the need to move, start turning our arrows towards the center of Jesus instead of focusing on a boundary. Every one of our hearts here is saying, if I have money, Keller says, if I have approval, if I have power,
power, if I have comfort, if I have control, if I have romance, if I get my way in the next transition at Pilgrim Church. We're all in that discussion, right? Every one of us, every one of us. Every one of our hearts needs the deeper conversion from our idols to the living God. Whew. John Lair talks about the power trap in the Wall Street Journal. Some years ago, he wrote this. Researcher, uh, Jonah rather, Lair said, most of us are nicer when we're climbing the social ladder, but once we get closer to the top of success, of power, of authority, we start acting like a beast. In fact, his research said this. Was one business professor concluded, it's an incredibly consistent effect. When you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. <laughs> Think about it. When you give people power, they start acting like fools. They first, they, they will flirt inappropriately. Think about all the scandals around that. They tease in a hostile fashion and become totally impulsive. Some have even compared the feeling of power to brain damage, noting that people with lots of authority tend to behave like neurological patients with a damaged frontal lobe, the area that's crucial for empathy and decision-making. Think about this, the, the problem of power. Blair noted in a study which psychologists asked members of a high-power group about speeding. The group speeding. By the way, have any of you paid attention to social media posts about the car that was flipped over? And was that on 49th? Where was that street the other day? You know what I'm talking about? There was a car like down here in South Vancouver, like flipped up, up onto a house. Like, like, clearly you were going over 50 kilometers per hour. You don't get flipped upside down, rammed up against the house. Lair noted in a study in which psychologists asked members of a high-power group about speeding. The group concluded that it was okay for them to speed, but that it was important for others to follow the posted speed limit. That's when you know power's distorting you. And the rationale was this, that powerful people are important and had a good reason for speeding. And Lair concludes, even the most virtuous people can be undone by the corner office, meaning the, the prime office in a building. Power is a problem, and our faith speaks to this. And in the church, when power has been misused, whether it's from pastors or unaccountable elder systems or, or just churches going off the rails, we create situations that can become toxic and destructive and not like the Jesus we claim to serve and worship. The Gentiles lorded over one another. It should not be with you. Should not be with us. And so in this Third message on the third shift about a change of power. Self-sacrificial love is to guide us. It's to guide us in how we engage with power. A few quotes here. Richard Foster, who wrote a lot on discipleship, great books on spiritual disciplines and formation, by the way, if you're trying to build up a habit, things that you repeat in your daily and weekly and monthly and throughout the year life that will shape you more like Christ. Richard Foster, tons of great resources. And he says this, and this is a quote, we'll put this on the screen. The ancient monastic vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience were a direct response to the issues of money, sex, and power. Or think of the Puritans, Foster says, who answered the question with their emphasis upon industry, faithfulness, and order. John Piper quote, once again, worth hearing again this morning. The way you think and feel and act about money, sex, and power puts your heart's treasure on display, either God or something else he made will be, be on display from your heart. There's an image from Lecrae. Do we have that? There we go. Sex, drugs, money, power, just because you get to choose your master doesn't mean you aren't a slave. We'll come back to that concept in a minute here. 
C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote, and I love Lewis stuff, not all of his stuff, but a lot of his stuff. He says, aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. (laughs) Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. The issues of money, sex, and power touch all people everywhere, all time. Every thinker, every spiritual path wrestles with these. Richard Foster tells us, like in that quote, that again, that the ancient wisdom of the church and even other religious traditions speak to this and answer it in slightly different ways. But when properly placed and effectively functioning, money, sex, and power have an enormous ability to bring goodness into our life, Tim Keller. We want to explore that a little bit here. In fact, this morning, I want to talk a little bit of the money, sex, and power. I'm going to talk a little more about money and just a little more about power before I let you go and give you some applications here. Are you still with me? Amen? Amen. Uh, I mean, does, uh, some, of you, some of you don't care about money, sex, and power. If you don't care about any of that stuff and it doesn't matter in your life at all, you're a liar, number one. But you can leave. No. <laughs> it affects every one of us directly, indirectly, in various ways. And so we want to talk a little more about that. That these all are good things even great things unless they become disordered and we're trying to get our ultimate life out of money, sex, and power. And that's when they slip into the territory of idolatry. So I was going to talk about a little more about the five shifts here, but I'm going to skip over that part. So for those in the back, no, I'm skipping over that part. I was going to give a little more review here, but I think I'm going to skip over the review as well. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, there were 14 triads. And you have an insert today that I want to point out to bring to your attention for you to explore later and in the Sermon on the Mount, we are talk, there are 14 transforming initiatives, different things we can do. Uh, you can put the Sermon on the Mount stuff on the screen if you want. Um, and uh, in those transforming initiatives, they bring our behaviors into the kingdom of God and, and talk about how we relate to power and relationships as well. So in those 14 triads on the Sermon on the Mount, um, we've wrestled with two of them already about how we relate to offense, how we relate to enemies and, enemies lo- and enemy love and self-sacrificial love. Uh, and so, uh, again, oh, we're way past this. Keep going, keep going. I don't know if you guys can catch up where I'm at there. So if you're following along in the paper outline, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount triads. And then I want to move into this other review that we've talked about this relationship with money, sex, and power in terms of this progression from slave, master, and steward. Uh, slave, master, and steward. I'll give these guys a second to find out. I think he's... Maybe... There we go. Well, now let's go to the next thing. Now we're going to talk about the slave master steward. There we go. Thank you. Super. Okay. Um, A few things here to talk about this by way of review before we talk a little more about money and power and land it. This is a a, a powerful teaching to understand from a kingdom of God mindset. So when we talk about a slave mindset, it's something that it owns you. Say it with me. It owns me. Money, sex, and power, you can have a relationship with it where you are, are driven by it. It controls you. you are, you're brought, when we talk about our politics of protest, whether it's capitalism or crony capitalism, crony communism, we have this sense of enslavement by a system. We are owned by it. And then there's this next stage that we believe in our secular culture and oftentimes our warmed over, lukewarm Christian culture, that this is the way we want to live, a master, that we own our relationship with money, sex, and power, that through skill and knowledge and our experience and, and boundaries that we can control and bring order. And by the way, when we get into that master mindset, we're also unintentionally or intentionally controlling and ordering other people around with it. But the kingdom mindset is to move all the way into the stewardship mindset. Say it with me, steward. Steward. 
stewardship mindset. Oh, that was weak. Call and say it with me this morning so I know you're awake. Steward. steward. I want to be a steward of things like money, sex, and power in my life. And the stewardship mindset is this idea that everything's a gift. And that language is dripping throughout the Bible. Uh, this idea that we are stewards, we are not owners of all that we have. And we get in dangerous places with power when we think we're owners, just like the empowered people in the research that felt like, well, I can speed, but you can't. I can drive my car down. It doesn't matter if I flip it over into a house. As long as I don't die, it doesn't matter, all that stuff. But everyone else, they need to obey their lives so I can zoom around them, right? Am I talking to somebody here? Some of you young men drivers here at Pilgrim Church and women as well, I imagine. Okay, all right. I could just do an altar call right now. Come to Jesus. Repent of that. Lead foot. <laughs> But a steward mindset is everything's a gift. And it's not just about you, but for the flourishing of others as well. Self-sacrificial love dovetails, connects with steward mindset. We are to have this idea that we are in some ways empowered children of the king. Uh, my faith church language comes to mind that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We've been given authority, dominion, and all those wonderful things. But we hold that together in tension also with this. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Learn to be the servant of all. The Gentiles lord it over one another. It must not be. It should not be with you. And a stewardship mindset helps us live into that tension. I've been given great gifts. I've been given whatever power I have in my life. I've been able to acquire, raise, whatever. But how I relate to it needs to change in my mindset. And let me tell you, when we go off the rails in the church, it's usually over this. We, we get into these fights. Instead of saying, how can we submit one to another? Ephesians 4, in love. We say, how can I get my way? How can I? How, and say, how can we discern the work of the Spirit together? And I would like to be the first to say, I am not perfect in this. I could give you counterexamples all day long of dumb ways of leading. I could also give you examples of growth and the good leadership as well in my life. Thank you, Jesus, for both. But we are called to move into this servanthood mindset regarding our giftedness. Not enslaved, but a gift of God and that God is ultimately the one that holds it all. The only thing we're called to be enslaved to, using that language, is Jesus himself. Full stop. That's it. Matthew 20, 26, not so with you. So let's talk a little bit about idolatry and then we'll move to the end here. Idolatry was rampant in the ancient world. Idols were made of wealth, of health, of sex, of power. They had priesthood, they had gods in various cultures in Greco-Roman and all over the world, really. But today it's the same, by the way, but the shrines are a little different. What's the shrine to money? What would be a shrine to money in our culture today in, in late modern uh, Vancouver? What would be a shrine to money? Can you think of something that you think that's kind of calls you to submit and worship anything? This could be dangerous depending on what people say, but we'll go with it. Metro Town! That's our favorite thing to pick on here at Pilgrim Church. And I was just at Metro Town the other day. All right. Yeah, I mean, think about, I mean, it is. The mall is, is one of the best mega churches around. It's designed to give you an experience to draw you into the worship, to define you as a consumer, to uh, it, it demands sacrifices of your money. I mean, all kinds of things. And it, it, it promises to give you prestige. If you take the thing, you exchange the money, you get the thing and the thing, depending on the ranking within the system, gives you certain prestige or less prestige. Wow. That's ordering identity, isn't it? Yeah. We could talk more about that, but I don't have time to unpack all that, but yeah. Keller talks about this as well. When things are made into idols, 
they often make promises that they cannot keep. If you just buy this thing, you'll feel better, you'll look good, you'll draw whatever, you'll do this or that, and you know it's a lie, and yet we believe the lies. That's an idol. It makes a promise that it cannot keep. The joy is incomplete when we make secondary joys primary things where Jesus, where God should be. And so we're called to deal with these counterfeit gods. We're told in Exodus 20 that anything really can become an idol. And Jesus tells us we are to love God first, but other things draw our first love, they become idols. And let me say a little more about idolatry, and then I want to wrap up this here. And this is quoting from Timothy Keller on this wonderful book uh, that he wrote about money, sex, and power. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, the ultimate God, and we're defining God by Jesus and his love. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you, and should you lose that thing, whatever it is, wealth, status, position, health, whatever, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And he says this, hear this, an idol has such, control, such a control position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotion, your finances on it without a second thought. I like how Paul says some of us, are, our idol is our stomach. We've made our stomach our God. Ooh, Vancouver is real tempting around that, right? I feel it. Pilgrim, you have fattened me up in my six years here. I just want to say that. I keep fighting it, but, you know, I'm losing the battle right now. It can be family. It can be children. And let me just say something about that. As you age and if you have kids and your kids and you're wrestling with their relationships, they can become an idol. I have felt the pull of that idolatry as my children continue to age into adulthood and the challenges around that. And at the end of the day, they are not my ultimate primary joy. Jesus is. It can be career. It can be making money. It can be achievement or critical acclaim. It can be saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty, your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality, your virtue, even success in Christian ministry. He goes on and says, when your meaning in life is to fix Someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it's really idolatry. He says, an idol is whatever you look to and look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. This kind of relationship we also call worship. The ancients said that we were all made to worship. You will worship something. You were made to worship. Oliver, you were made to worship. Just making sure your earbuds are not in. Love, love you, son. Uh, every one of you is a fireplace. You are made for fire of worship. The question is, are you willing to name it? And many people say, oh, no, I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't worship anything. Baloney. Usually atheists are worship, they're worshiping something. They're worshiping, I'm, I'm worshiping my, it's funny, and atheists and fundamentalists tend to define God in the same way. And they're getting their identity out of what God is or what God isn't, but they're worshiping that sense of control and ordering over the circumstance. So beyond this, we need to understand our relationship with power must shift. We need to move from being a master to a servant so let me talk a little about money, and I'm going to land the plane. We're not doing communion. We're going straight to food, so just give me a few more minutes. And I'm leaving in two months anyway, so it'll be okay. It'll be, look at your neighbor and say, it'll be okay. Well, that was weak. <laughs> Try to convince your neighbor it's going to be okay. I think we oftentimes try to control our resources and try to think that if I don't give... And many of us, maybe if we've been raised in the church, have experienced bad teaching about money, but one of the reasons why we give 
is to make sure money is not an idol in our lives. Dr. James Kennedy passed away some years ago, tells the story of a man who came to Peter Marshall, and he said this, former chaplain of the United States Senate, said this. Um, this guy came to him, came to Peter Marshall, and said, I have a problem. I've been tithing for some time, and we teach grace-based giving, proportional giving, so don't get, wild, don't get triggered by the word tithing, but hear this story. I have a problem. I have been tithing for some time. He was giving the traditional, a traditional 10% out of grace. And he says, it wasn't too bad when I was making $20,000 a year. And the story's from years ago, by the way. He said, it was easy. I could afford to give the $2,000. But see, now I'm making $500,000 a year. And there's just no way I can afford to give $50,000 a year. And the Reverend Dr. Peter Marshall reflected on this wealthy man's dilemma. And of course, he was chaplain to the U.S. Senate, so surrounded by lots of people with lots of wealth. And he reflected on his dilemma, but he gave no advice. And he simply said, sir, I see that you have a problem. And I think we ought to pray about it. Is that all right? And the man agreed. So Dr. Peter Marshall bowed his head and prayed with boldness and authority for his brother's struggling with the idolatry of money. And he says, dear Lord, this man has a problem. And I pray that you will help him, Lord. I ask, Father, that you would reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. We laugh. But that's the thing about power and it relates to money and sex is that it's insidious and it teaches us, it, it makes us feel like we are better than others, that we should ask to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus and his kingdom to come because of all the wonderful things we have done, that we should be the ones who get to ignore the common agreed-to laws of the land, that we, we wrestle with these things. This man's wealth grew to a point that it enslaved him. He was no longer generous towards God's work. Yes, hard work is blessed. I come from the upper Midwest, full of Dutch and German and more recent immigrants from the rest of the world as well. But there was an ethic and is still a work ethic in the Midwest that if we just work, it's the Protestant Dutch thing coming all the thing, the Puritanism, you know, that, that if I earn it, if I gain it, it's all mine. And then, and yeah, 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 we give lip service to some of this other stuff. And when it's divorced from Christianity, it becomes diabolical evil. If we can't put God first in these areas of our lives, they will become idols. Money, sex, power will become idols. You will create altars and they will demand sacrifices of you. And so we need to ask, how do we have a new relationship with this power? I'm reminded recently of um, oh, the actor in The Fiddler on the Roof who passed away. And if you've watched The Fiddler, anyone know what I'm talking about? Fiddler on the Roof, old musical from the 60s. About a Jewish settle out in, East, uh, in Russia. And it's a very poor little village. And uh, this man is a farmer, and he's just really struggling with trying to make ends meet. And he has a family and all daughters and so dowries and all the things. And this guy says, and, and then there's one of the guys that is beginning to interact with the village, this guy named Herchek says, and he's a communist, and he says this. He says, uh, money is the world's curse. Money is the world's curse. And Tevia with a twinkle in eye, looks up to heaven and says this, and may the Lord smite me with it and may I never recover. Okay, all right. Idolatry, Tevya, idolatry right there. First Timothy 6.10 says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We need to deal with our relationship with these things. We are often blind to our own greed. We can talk about 
pride, some of us can talk. In fact, sometimes it's easier to talk about LGBTQ issues and, and all of that than it is to talk about money, to be honest. In fact, that, that annoys everybody across the spectrum, progressive to conservative. It's the one unifying thing in the church. Talk about money and you'll get everybody uh, worked up and riled up. I'm quite serious about that. <laughs> because we've experienced, we have experienced heavy-handedness, we've experienced maybe abusive language around it, or we pendulum swung all the way to the other side that we just look the other way. And yet in all of our hearts, we live in Vancouver, the most, one of the most inexpensive, uh, not inexpensive, uh, <laughs> unaffordable, there's the word I'm looking for, <laughs> one of the most unaffordable cities in the world, and certainly in North America. I mean, we're right up there with London and Hong Kong. We've got a problem of idolatry of money in our culture, and this will get into the second sermon, but I can't preach it today. We've got a problem. And maybe the church needs to find its prophetic voice in saying, how are we looking at housing? How are we looking at salaries? How are we looking at our society? How are we speaking to a very real idolatry in our culture? It's easy to rail about all the issues around the other things, but this is a huge one in our culture right now. We've got people living on the streets. We've got people addicted. We've got people enslaved to all kinds of brokenness and sin that our society turns its head and blesses. Dear Jesus, help us. I keep preaching like that. I'm going to throw it out of Canada. Lose my immigration status. All right, I'm a citizen now. They can't throw me out, I don't think. But this is huge. So let me land this. And all God's people this time truly said amen, and they were admitted because I truly mean it. I think we need to do a couple things by way of takeouts. Worship team, come on up so you can play me off the stage. <laughs> Number one, I think we need to break the culture of silence around money, sex, and power in our church both with issues within the churches and within our larger culture. We cannot speak prophetically to the world if we are not looking at the log in our own eye first. We need to, to think about this, breaking this culture. We need to talk more about these things. Home churches, you know, there's all kinds of wonderful questions you'll wrestle with this week. The second takeout I want to say is this. You are called to cultivate a mindset of stewardship around power and money and sex. And I would say power underlies all of those. The stewardship of power is important. And we actually believe that God's power is unlimited. We believe that if you seek the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do the things Jesus has called us to do in our personal lives and as a church in the world, that God's power is not limited, that it is not a zero-sum game. In fact, we believe in the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, that he will fill us. And if we are feeling empty and dry, we can ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. So this idea of power needs to shift, and God's power is a different kind of power, and it's unlimited. But he doesn't force it on us. He invites us to participate in it in a non-coercive way. Stewardship of power matters. Stewardship of money matters. What is my enough? I had friends when I came to this church thought I was absolutely insane around this. But for me, it's never been about that. It's been about where can I make a difference? Where can I bless people? Where can I serve? Where can I grow? And I think I've grown a lot while serving here as well. Some of you may debate that, but I believe I've grown a lot. How much should we be giving away? What's my responsibility to my family, my church community, my country, my world? We need to rest. What is my enough to live on? We can talk about sex and sexuality. I'll say maybe save that for the last few sermons. But how am I bringing joy and pleasure and oneness to the person I've covenanted to do life together with? The idea of covenant faithfulness and sexuality is a check on the misuse, like that young man's issue earlier that we read in that story. And all of these are dealing with power. So cultivate a mindset of stewardship around power, money, and sex. The third takeaway is this. With God's help, begin to identify these areas 
that are neglected and resulting in lordship and idolatry issues in your life? Where have you made one of these an idol? And there's ways to work through that. I I, got to move on, but I'm going to say that. Identify in your life, what are the lordship issues around these? And the fourth thing I want to say this is if you are feeling powerless, you hear these things and you're like, I don't have a sense of power in any of these areas of my life. Well, it's probably not entirely true, number one. So begin by naming the circumstances of your life. Name the power that you do have and then ask the Holy Spirit to fill the voids you sense. And also, are there things, are there ways you should be engaging in culture? Whether that's therapy, whether that's uh, a, a kingdom sort of jesus justice, well, whatever it is, find ways to take back your personal power. And remember that God will empower you directly to do that. The work of the Spirit, in part, why the church goes from being about just individual sin to social sin, is that when the Holy Spirit fills us, the Spirit will call us to see the brokenness of the world and calls us not simply to condemn it, but to enter into that out of self-sacrificial love and make a difference. But you've got to be connected to that power source so you will burn out. And so this morning, would you stand with me as we move to the end of this message before we transition. Please stand if you're able to do so. In two weeks, we'll pick up with number four and then number five on the shifts. But we are called to have a new relationship with money, sex, and power. Power undergirds all of this, how we relate to it. Now, when the other ten heard this, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And in those high positions, used their authority over them. It must not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve Come to be served, rather, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, Lord, as we leave this house today, challenge us, empower us, forgive us, and help us to hear your love being poured on us and through us and in us. And when the church has gone off the rails or we've gone off the rails, draw us back. And may your word be doing that in this house today. Lord, as our church enters into a season of transition and already kind of is a little bit, thank you, Jesus. As we enter this time of transition, we know the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, to divide. And how can we submit to one another in love to keep our power in check in this time so we can hear your voice? not simply the idols that want to put themselves out in front. So Lord, guide us in this season. In Jesus' name, I pray.